Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 17. What an amazing text we have in front of us this morning. Lord God in heaven, I'm, I'm blown away that you have made us kings and priests unto you. And now, because of our great high priest, Jesus, we can come right to your throne, Lord. We can offer you the worship that we've already offered you. We can, we can pray together. We can hear from your word. And there's nothing barring us from your presence because Jesus has made a new and living way for us. We're so grateful for that, Lord. And now we want to experience it. We want to enjoy it. We want to thank you for it, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we begin again in Acts chapter 17. We've been making our way through the book of Acts. I don't know about you. I've really been enjoying Acts. I've got my eye down the road to when it ends, and I'm already a little bit sad in my heart to think of Acts ending because I'm just loving the story as it charts the spread of the gospel all the way from its beginning in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended to heaven. But before he did, he told his disciples that they should go out and make disciples of all the nations, starting in Jerusalem and then through Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts sort of charts how that happens. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria. And now, by the time we're here in Acts chapter 17, we're at the portion, we're at the section of the book of Acts where it's talking about the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. And it just keeps further, pushing further and further out. And today, we're going to see Paul go from the city of Berea. That's where we left him last time in the book of Acts chapter 17, verse 15. And by the time we come to verse 16, he's on his way by ship to the city of Athens. Let's take a look at that, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So as Paul sailed to Athens from the city of Berea, Actually, Berea is not on the coast. He had to go from Berea to the ocean and then to the sea, across southward and then a little bit westward to Athens. As he makes that journey, he sails into the city of Athens, and he would have been just like any other person who had never visited that amazing city before. I picture Paul as being a little bit starstruck as a tourist coming into Athens. Now, make no mistake about it. By this time... Oh, we're talking about maybe 40, 50 A.D. By this time, Athens was well beyond its glory days. Its glory days of hundreds of years before, when it was one of the leading cities of the world and one of the power centers, as well as being one of the intellectual centers of the world. But but even though it was nowhere near its former glory, it was still an amazing city with those amazing buildings on top of the Parthenon, which, of course, I've never seen for myself, but I've seen pictures of it. It seems absolutely amazing. And then you tour around the rest of the city and see the glory of Greek civilization, the glory of Greek democracy. You just see something amazing there in the ancient world when you come to the city of Athens. And Paul would have been just astounded as he took it all in. He walks the streets as a tourist. As he goes around, he's ready to be impressed by that famous, by that historic city. 
which again, as I said before, hundreds of years before, was one of the most important and glorious cities of the ancient world. But when Paul toured Athens, he saw something different. We're not giving a little travel log, right? Oh, well, you have to see the Parthenon. You have to see this. We're not giving a travel like that. What impressed Paul as he toured Athens for the first time was he was absolutely blown away by all the idolatry he saw everywhere around him. He was astounded by the magnitude of idolatry. You see, the sense we have in our text here, verse 16, where it says, well, Paul waited for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him. The idea is that Paul would almost have preferred until Timothy and Silas joined him from Berea. He left them behind in Berea to strengthen the church there, at least for a few weeks until he came and continued his work. But you see, when he saw that the city was given over to idols, did you see that phrase in verse 16? When he saw that the city was given over to idols, he was compelled to preach the gospel immediately. Man, I got to preach. This is a city that's so steeped in idolatry that it needs the freeing power of Jesus Christ and it needs it now. Now, the idea behind that ancient Greek word that's translated given over to idols is really the idea is that they're under idols or swamped by idols. They're submerged. They're buried underneath the weight of them. So Paul saw the beauty of Athens, but yet as he saw the best that Greek sculptors and architects and artisans could offer, what really grieved his heart was he saw that this was a city that did not honor God. And so what did he do? Verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue. And verse 17 also tells us that he also got his message out in the marketplace. Paul's practice was to preach wherever he could get an audience. So there was a synagogue there in Athens, and so he went to the Jewish people there and to the God-fearing Gentiles who were gathered there at the synagogue, and he preached to them. And then he went to the marketplace, whoever would hear him. I don't know, it's a street corner preacher, personal conversations, whatever it took. Paul wanted to talk to people about Jesus Christ, and he spoke to, verse 17, it says, those who happened to be there. And when Paul encountered those who happened to be there in the city of Athens, he encountered a very different kind of audience. They encountered a people who were very proud of their history, a, a city that was an intellectual city of the world, sort of like an Oxford or a Cambridge of the modern world. Paul spoke to a city that was somewhat different than any other city that he had ever spoken to before. So how's he going to do it? How's he going to penetrate this intellectual, uh, past its glory city, full of pride, full of academic arrogance? How's he going to penetrate this city with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, look at what he does here. Verse 18, it says, Well, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I want you to notice that there. At the end of verse 18, it says, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection, these two different groups. First, it spoke of certain Epicurean philosophers. Well, look, I don't mean this to be sort of an introductory course on ancient Greek philosophy. But let me just give you a little difference between the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans pursued pleasure as the chief purpose in life. But, but yet not so much in what we think is this mad, hedonistic kind of way. 
The Epicureans most of all valued the pleasure of a peaceful life, free from pain, free from disturbing passions, and most of all, free of superstitious fears, especially the fear of death. The Epicureans didn't deny the existence of the gods, but the Epicureans believed that the gods had very little to do with man, and the chief pursuit of man was just to try to enjoy life to the very best of your abilities and avoid pain at all costs. The Epicureans. You can see there's a lot of Epicurean philosophy in the world today, right? might not go by that name, but it's the same basic instincts, is it not? And then verse 18 also says that he spoke to certain Stoic philosophers. The Stoics were pantheists. That is, they believed in a great number of gods, but they put great value on moral sincerity and a very high sense of duty. They cultivated a sense of proud dignity. There's an expression that's used of the British especially. It's sort of a strange expression if you just think about the words, but I think you'll understand what I mean. The stiff upper lip, right? You're sort of impenetrable. Whatever misfortune comes your way, you just try to forget about it and do the best you can, right? All right, whatever. I know problems are going to happen in my life, but you know what? I'm just going to be a man or I'm going to be a grown-up woman. I'm not going to care about those things. I'm going to keep that stiff upper lip and make my way through life. That's the idea of the Stoics. You see, they believed that no life was better than a life lived without dignity. And so they believed everything was God. And since God was in everything... They believed yet that, that uh, nothing should be resisted and that there's no particular destiny for mankind. It's just every man, every woman is in the world for themselves. There's a lot of stoic thinking in the world today, right? So these two philosophies, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they heard Paul preaching. They heard him preaching in the synagogue. They heard him preaching out in the marketplace. And what did they say? Look at verse 18 again. It says, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Why? Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. You see, I want you to notice something. Paul preached to them. I know I'm just repeating the words from the text, but I like doing that. Paul preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. I don't know. I... I hope you're a little bit blown away by that, because I am. He's in a very different place. He's speaking to people of a very different background. He's speaking to people who value academics and the intellectual life in a way that he hadn't seen in other places where he'd preached before. And what does he do? He brings them the same essential message that he brought before. And friends, this is something really wonderful for us to focus on just for a moment. We are saved by the same gospel, by the same work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. We are. It's not as if the really smart people among us, and man, I know there's some really smart people among us here today. It's not like the really smart people among us are saved in one way, and those of us less so smart, that's really not the way to put it, but you know what I mean, right? I think I just illustrated it by the way I said it. And those other people have to be saved another way, right? No, it's the same message. As it's been said sort of figuratively, man, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? We all come there together. 
It's not separated by classes. It's not separated by socioeconomic status. It's not separated by language. It's not separated by race. It's not separated by intelligence. It's not separated by any of those things. It is level. All of humanity has to come to the same place to be made right with God, and that's to what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. He preached the same thing. He didn't say, well, no, this is my, you know, uh, uh, Athens sermon just for those, and this is the other message. Now, as we're going to see, Paul did know how to speak to his audience, and we'll see that in just a moment. But yet it was the same core message all around. It was that very distinct message. I'll just read the words again. He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, I love what it says, starting at verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying... May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing something strange to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. How about that, huh? This is what they did. They loved to hear new ideas. And so when Paul brought this new message of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who is actually the Messiah of Israel, and how his work wasn't limited to Israel at all, but rather he himself commanded before he ascended to heaven that they should make disciples of all the nations, not of the Jewish people only, that this message was just as true for the Athenians as it was for the other places that Paul had preached previously. They thought, man, this is amazing. This is provocative. We want to hear more about this. Paul, won't you come to our special meeting? place, our our philosopher's discussion society, whichever you want to call it, won't you come and share this message with us? Why? Because they were entertained by hearing new things. That's just like us, isn't it? Come on, you news junkies. Come on, you people scouring the internet all the time for any new piece of information wherever you can find it, right? Then you just you just sort of thrive on it, don't you? Anything you can find, just something new. Give me something exciting. Let some crisis happen in the world somewhere far enough away from us, hopefully, that we can follow it piece by piece and just submerge our lives into something interesting, something vital, that sort of spectator mentality. But look, I think it's good to have a curious, investigating sort of mind. But you see a trap here, don't you? The trap is this, is that when you're interested in these new, these novel things, but you're not so much interested in the impact that they might have upon your life. This is where it's going to go here. Take a look at it now. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus, that's another way to translate the idea of Mars Hill. So there he is. He's standing at the Philosophical Society, right? Right there up on your PowerPoint, that's a picture, right, of modern-day Athens and what's said to be the Areopagus, that great outcropping of rock where it's said that Paul stood, and it's probably as reliable as any other site that you would see back there, that this is actually the place where Paul stood and addressed these men, this, this philosophical discussion society. And Paul was probably thrilled. Listen, he was happy to preach in the synagogues, right? And that's what he did before there in Athens. He was happy to preach in the marketplace, and he felt like he had to do it because of all the idolatry he signed around, found around him. 
But when he was invited to address this academic, philosophical discussion and debating society, he was probably especially happy about that. And so he seizes upon the invitation. There he's speaking. I'll start again right there at verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one to whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. What I find sort of fascinating about this is that Paul did not begin with an exposition of Scripture, as was often his case when he seemed to preach in the synagogues. In other words, he began with another thing. He began with the idea of connecting with his audience on the ground that they could relate to. You're religious people, and I want to speak to you as religious people. And so he begins with this very general reference to religion. Matter of fact, telling them in verse 22, did you see the phrase? In all things you are very religious. By the way, many ancient observers recognize the very religious character of the ancient city of Athens. Some people thought that the Athenians were the most religious of all people. But when Paul saw the religion of the Athenians, he he didn't say, yes, hooray, at least you're religious. I can leave you alone. My job is to bring you religion. No. His job was to preach to them Jesus of Nazareth who he was, and what they had done on the cross. And friends, all their religion, apart from Jesus, could could only work to do them harm in their lives instead of doing them something genuinely good. Do you realize this, friends? Do you realize that religion can lead someone away from God? And that if you or if I trust in a false religion, it does us little good to say, well, at least he's religious, right? No, no, no. There's aspect of truth to religion, and this is what Paul's going to touch on, where verse 23, he speaks of this, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. That's very interesting, isn't it? You see, the Greeks had dozens and dozens of gods, right? Dozens of them. They had Zeus and Hermes and Athena and on and on and on. You could just name the gods. They had them. You want gods? The Greeks got gods. They got lots of them. There's statues to them all around there in Athens. Yet they were haunted by this recognition. What if there was a god that we missed? Right? What if there's a god out there and we just forgot about him? He didn't make our list. And so just to cover their bases, they set up altars to the unknown god. And Paul says, that's my point of connection. I can build a point of connection between the Athenians and myself by emphasizing this idea of the unknown God. Matter of fact, it seems from ancient accounts that Athens was filled with altars to the unknown God. 600 years before the time of Paul, a terrible plague came upon the city of Athens. And a man named Epimenides had an idea. He let loose a flock of sheep in the midst of the city And wherever those sheep lay down, they sacrificed the sheep to the temple or to the altar of the God to which near the the sheep laid down. So here's a sheep that lays down right outside the temple of Zeus. All right, well, that sheep goes to Zeus. Sacrifice him to that. And this sheep lays down in the midst of the 
temple to Aphrodite. Okay, great. Sacrifice him to Aphrodite. On and on and on. But what if a sheep laid down nowhere near any particular temple? Aha, there we're going to set up an altar to the unknown God and sacrifice the sheep there. So dotted all throughout Athens were these altars to the unknown God. And Paul says, you know what? You guys don't know this God, but I do. And I'm here to tell you about him. So you ready for this? Here he goes, verse 24, the meat of the message. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. I picture Paul gesturing to some magnificent Greek temple when he says that, right? Does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore... Since we are the offspring of God, we not ought to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devices. Now, before we tear this apart, and it's really a wonderful statement that Paul makes, but before we tear this apart, I just want you to get the general idea here. Paul understood that when you said God or gods to the Athenians, something registered in their mind, right? They thought of something. They thought of Zeus. They thought of Diana. They thought of all these different pagan gods, right? Something registered in their minds when he said the word God or gods. Here's the problem. In Paul's estimation, and you've got to be honest, this is what Paul's thinking, what registered in their mind was wrong. It was false. And here Paul's trying to correct it. Paul's trying to tell them something about the true, the living God who's actually enthroned in the heavens. The God who is really there and who has communicated to man. Now look, I just need to ask you a very straightforward question right here, right now, before we start tearing apart, starting it in verse 24. I just need to ask you this question. How do you know that what comes into your mind when you think about God is true? Is it the true God? Is it the living God? Is it the God who is really there or is it the God who is a figment of your imagination? You say, well, why does it matter? Why is it important? Well, I think it's extremely important. To to paraphrase A.W. Tozer, he said something like this. The most important thing about a man is what comes into his mind when he thinks about God. And I agree with that. I agree, it matters a great deal who you think God is because more than you ever, ever imagined, it shapes who you are and how you think and what you do. Okay, now back to Paul here. Verse 24, he begins by saying, God is a creator. Verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. God spoke, excuse me, Paul spoke about the God who created everything, yet he's distinct from his creation. 
He told him that God was bigger than any temple that men's hands could build. As it says in verse 24, he does not dwell in a temple made with hands, nor could he really be represented by anything that people could make with their hands. It says, verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands. You see, Paul started at the beginning. He said, friends, the first thing I want you to understand is that God is the creator of all things and we are his creatures. Now, when I say that, I don't know exactly how to communicate that to you. Because I don't know if I should just assume that everybody in this room believes that. Or maybe I should sort of contend for a few minutes with those of you who don't believe it. But let me just say this. This is one of the most fundamental ideas of our relationship with God is that we must believe that God is a creator and that we have obligations to him because we are his creatures. I think that one of the master strokes of, boy, how do I say this without sounding too conspiratorial? One of the master strokes of Satan's grand strategy over the last few hundred years is to separate man from the idea that God is the creator and that we have obligations to him as creatures. Now look, I'm not here to debate how that idea of creation actually works out technically. I know that different Christians have different ideas about that. Young earth, old earth, this idea, that idea. But listen, I will tell you this absolutely irreducibly. You have to believe that God is the creator. What's more, you have to believe that he is your creator. And that you have obligations to him simply because he made you. Now, what I think is amazing about this is how few people walking the streets of Santa Barbara or any other typical city in the United States of America have that idea in their mind at all. That there's a God in heaven who created them and they have obligations to that God merely because he created them. Most people feel that they don't owe God anything, right? And matter of fact, If there's anything, God owes them something, right? I don't know how that equation exactly works out, but it's the attitude of many, many people, is it not? Paul says, no, we are his creatures. He is our creator. Paul recognized that these philosophers had to change their ideas about God. They had to move from their own personal opinions about God to an understanding of who God is according to what he tells us about himself in his word. I just want to say this. Man, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding rude to you. Your personal opinions about God matter very little. Now, I'll qualify that with a full admission. My personal opinions about God matter very little. What matters is what this book tells us about God. This is the important thing. And our personal opinions about God well, I believe that heaven is full of cotton candy and that little fairies dance there and on and on and on. You can have all those personal opinions you want, but they matter very little. And my personal opinions matter very little. What this book says matters everything. And that's what Paul's calling these philosophers to. 
Well, he continues on, verse 26. He says, and he's made from one blood every nation of men. Paul told him that we're all descended from Adam through Noah and that there's one God who created us and to whom we are all obligated. And since God has created us, look for this payoff verse in verse 27. He says that we should all seek the Lord, though he is not far from each one of us. Hey, he created you. He set the the boundaries of your habitation. You're obligated to him. Therefore, you're obligated to seek the Lord. Listen, a very, very valid question to ask anybody, to ask the man or the woman on the streets of Santa Barbara is, do you seek the Lord? And if the answer is no, it's why not? You have an obligation to do it because of he created and because he's managed your life. Verse 28, he says this, For in him we live and move and have our being. And then he also says, for we are also his offspring. These are two quotations that Paul used from Greek poets. One of them named uh, Erotus, for we also are his offspring. And then the other one from Epimenides, the Cretan, 600 B.C. For in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, By the way, Paul didn't quote these men because they were prophets or because all their teaching was of God. He quoted them because these specific words of them reflected a biblical truth. And by using them, he could build a bridge to his pagan audience. He could say, I've read the same books you guys have read. I've gone the same places. And then verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. Paul told them that we have a responsibility to think rightly about God because we're his offspring. And since we're his offspring, we have obligations to him as a creator and we must reject the idea that God is gold or silver or stone. And now, verse 30, Paul's going to apply it. How do you apply this truth? Look at it. It's really wonderful, verse 30. He says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. See what Paul said? Isn't it amazing? First of all, he's told them what they must do. Secondly, they introduced now who Jesus is and nailing that point home. Verses 30 and 31, he says, Now in light of all this, God commands that all men everywhere should repent. Why? Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Do you notice Paul's progression here? He went from proclaiming who God is, our creator, to who we are, his offspring, to now our responsibility before him to understand that we should worship him in truth, and then finally our accountability before him that we will be dishonored, we will have to answer for it on the day of judgment, how we have acted before this God. Shouldn't we just give some credit to the Apostle Paul here for preaching a very strong message on the Areopagus, on Mars Hill? He laid it out. There's a God in heaven who created us. We are all his offspring. We're obligated to worship and honor him in truth. And if you don't, you're going to have to answer for it on the day of judgment. Now, let me tell you a little something about this judge. If you notice this, verse 31, he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. For the first time in his message to the Athenians, 
Paul referred to Jesus and he introduced Jesus to them as a righteous judge. I've got to say, honestly, I don't do this very often in my own preaching. Rarely is that the first way that I speak to people about Jesus. But maybe I should do it more. Rarely is I say, okay, let me tell you about Jesus. The first thing you need to know about him is that he's the righteous judge and you're going to stand before him to give account of your life on the day of judgment. It's like, wow. Can't I tell him about Jesus patting the children on the head first? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. But you see, it all flows perfectly in Paul's message. Because listen, this is the man, this one whom God has ordained that we're all going to have to answer to on the day of budget. You see, he, he didn't want to leave the Athenians with the idea that Jesus was only a righteous judge. And I believe that Paul was stopped short in this message. I believe that Paul would have loved to go on in this message. But he said, let me tell you, first thing you got to know about this guy, he's going to judge you. Now, I think part of this was Paul reading his audience. I can't say this for certain. Let me go out just a little bit on a limb of speculation. If you want to saw it off behind me, that's okay. Let me go out a little bit on this limb of speculation. I'm supposing that as any good preacher, Paul is reading his audience as he's preaching, right? He's looking at them. Are they engaged? Are they interested? Am I losing them? Are their faces hardening? And I believe, I'm just supposing here, I can't prove this. Please understand, I want to make it clear when I'm speaking straight from the Bible and when I'm not. But I'm supposing that Paul is looking at his audience and he's seeing intellectual hardness. He's seeing people who are looking at him with that skeptical eye saying, what do you have to tell us? Look at you. You, a Jewish man from the eastern part of the Roman Empire. You know, we don't countenance your type around here. Oh, I can tell you got an education. Oh, I can tell you you can quote the Greek poets. Oh, I can tell you're well-read. But, you know, we really don't have anything to learn from you, mister. I can just imagine that's what he's seeing on the faces. As Paul sees that, he says, listen, you guys better first know this, that you're going to be held to account for what I bring to you. I don't know. I don't know if I'm speaking to any hard hearts this morning. Many hundred people here. There's got to be some. There's got to be some people here that what you really need to know about Jesus today, you really need to know that you're going to stand and give account before him on the day of judgment. The same Savior that died on the cross and gave the ultimate price to purchase the forgiveness of your sins That as he hung on the cross, all the guilt and the shame and penalty that your sin, that my sin deserved, it was poured out upon Jesus. All of that, that same Savior that gave himself in the extremity of love, putting himself as a substitute for the judgment of God, that if you reject it, you will stand before him on the day of judgment. And you'll have to look at that Savior. That Savior who gave everything to rescue you and you rejected all that he gave and you'll have to give account for it. Now, friends, how could you ever give account for such a thing? And not meaning to pile guilt upon you, but I will say this. You can't say that you never heard. You're listening to me right now. And so Paul gave this very pointed, direct word to them. And then he says, verse 31, He's given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. The emphasis on the resurrection was important. Paul saw the resurrection as assurance of who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. 
Paul seemed unable to preach a sermon without focusing on the resurrection of Jesus because nothing in the Christian life made sense apart from it. In the last couple verses of the chapter, let's start at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. While others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. Now, let me just ask you, does anybody here for a moment think that Paul intended to end his message at the end of verse 31? I think he's just getting rolling, right? He's just introduced Jesus to them. And he meant to tell them so much more about Jesus. He introduced Jesus to them as the righteous judge risen from the dead. He meant to tell so much more. But then all of a sudden the cat calls start coming from the... Oh, they're mocking him. Oh, this is very strange. Oh, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. The resurrection wasn't a popular idea among Greek philosophers. I won't get into all the technical reasons why, but they were not stoked about the idea of the body being resurrected. And so when Paul mentioned that, they just started mocking him. And some said, well, we'll mock you. Others said, well, we'll hear you again on this. There's no urgency to this. And then at the end of it, Paul, just verse 33, departed from among them. Paul wanted to tell them so much more about Jesus. But in the midst of the mockery, in the midst of, well, shut up for now, we'll hear you later. Paul just departed from among them. Nevertheless, verse 34, some men joined him and believed. Even from that sort of abbreviated message that Paul was able to give in that brief little place on the Areopagus, what some people responded with belief. Now, there's a very interesting question among Bible teachers and students about Paul's whole thing at Mars Hill. Some people wonder, did Paul blow it at Mars Hill? They say, maybe he didn't preach Christ simply and crucified. And that's why there were very meager results. The idea continues on to say that when Paul went to Corinth, he decided to preach nothing but the cross and the cross itself. And that's what we're going to see next week. Paul in Corinth. And many people popularized the idea that Paul was disappointed by his meager results in Athens. And so he determined on another approach in the next city where we see that he's going to go. But listen, I have to tell you, friends, I think that Paul's message in Athens and Mars Hill was very biblical. He did preach Christ. He preached Christ in the synagogues. He preached Christ in the marketplace. And as much as he was able to, as much as his audience would allow him to, he did it there at Mars Hill. Now, maybe, maybe Paul left there thinking, I wish I would have started telling them about Jesus and him crucified instead of tarted telling them about Jesus, the righteous judge. I don't know. We can discuss that with Paul when we get to heaven. But I would say this, that it's a dangerous thing to judge the content of the message by the magnitude of the response, right? It is possible to preach an entirely faithful gospel message, entirely faithful, in a very little response. Because as Jesus said in his parable of the sower, right? The seed gets scattered out. It's condition of the heart, of the ground that it lands upon, that determines that same seed is scattered out. But some respond and some choose not to. So let me end with just sort of three takeaways here. First of all, just building on the very last point, 
We're called to proclaim a message and to leave the results up to God. Can you have peace with that? Many of you are probably frustrated. You've just had Thanksgiving dinner with some relatives that you desperately want to see come to Jesus. And man, you had the perfect thing to say. You, I mean, man, you practiced it. You rehearsed it in front of the mirror. Surely they cannot stand against this presentation that I'm going to give them. And you know what? There was no response. Can I, I just absolve you of the responsibility of having to save other people? No, let's let Jesus save them. We will faithfully proclaim the message and leave the results in Jesus' hands. Friends, we shouldn't try to talk people into God's kingdom. If we can talk them into it, then someone else can talk them out of it. We proclaim the message and let God change their heart. We'll proclaim it as best we can and filled with faith. But ultimately, the results are up to God himself. Secondly, I just want to remind you on this point. What you think about God and how you think about him matters. I want you to think about this this very week, this very day. I want you to think about God as a creator and as your creator. That you have certain obligations simply because he made you. And how much better if your life is alive to the things of God. You can have a relationship with that creator. But then finally, look back at verse 30 with me if you would. One line from there, I just want to emphasize in closing. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Do you understand that that's what Paul was calling the Athenians to do? Repent. Repent of your wrong ideas about God. Repent about your chosen favored philosophies instead of the straightforward word of God. Friends, all I can say is that God still commands all men everywhere to repent. You and I. To turn our minds, to turn our hearts towards the living God. That's a word that goes out to you and to I. I don't know how that works out in your individual life. I don't doubt that there's some people here, you need to repent about your wrong ideas about God. But there's other people, they need to repent uh, over their chosen bondage to a sin. They need to repent of their hardness of heart. They need to repent of their laziness. They need to repent of their greed. They need to repent of their unbelief. I could just go on and on until I hit something where you're at. Listen, you, you know what God's calling us to do, right? To turn ourselves towards him, away from sin and self, orient ourselves towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and every day keep ourselves there. So repent is God's word unto us. I'm amazed at how often and how consistently we see it throughout the book of, uh, of, of Acts. But let me just close with this. Repentance, friends... It's not a word of condemnation. I don't stand up here with a finger shaking towards you right in your face. You know, in the classic preacher stance, maybe I should hold my Bible like this, you know, repent, you know, that kind of thing. No, listen, I I say to you and I say to myself, repentance is a word of hope. You know what repentance says? Repentance says it doesn't have to be the way that it's been for you. You don't have to hold on to those wrong ideas about God. You don't have to hold on to that sin that holds you in bondage. You don't have to hold on to that self-destructive greed or laziness or hardness or heart or going. You just make the list. 
God's transforming power can work in your life. That's a word of hope, ladies and gentlemen. I think God calls us to it right here, right now. Let's receive it. Let's thank God for it in prayer. The Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord. I thank you because we can come to you as the creator of all things. We believe that you are, Lord. We believe that you've created heaven and earth. And now, Lord, as we look at you in the midst of you in your created glory, we say, Lord, we are your offspring. We are your creatures. And we need to be right and stay right with you. And so, Lord, I, I don't know how the message of repentance connects to each individual life. But I know that your Holy Spirit knows. And so, Lord, won't you move upon hearts right now? I pray that in these prayers that we sing, in the worship that we offer to you, that you'd cultivate a great heart of turning to you. And that, Jesus, we receive every good gift that you, our Creator, has to give us. Jesus, move in our midst. Speak to hearts now on that deep level that your Spirit does. In Jesus' name. Jealous for me, loves like a hurricane.